And we've taken a bit of a divergence from Abraham's story to look at the story of Lot. We've seen this before where God for a moment will take a sidestep away from the seed line and he will tell us what happened to some of the other characters. He did this, for example, with Cain and his descendants and he's doing it here with Lot. He's explaining to us what happened to Lot because his family line is about to disappear, except that they uh, will be represented in a nation of descendants, but the individuals will no longer be traced by their heritage. So we have here abandoning Sodom. We are, uh, we are taking the story of Sodom very slowly. It occupies, uh, well, one whole chapter, but a very long chapter in Genesis. Um, and this is an important chapter. We don't want to just gloss over it or go too quickly, as uncomfortable as some of the topics might be, because remember, this was a key factor in teaching Abraham how they are to act as a nation of, under God, to understand God's righteousness and to understand his justice. So we begin with this uh, main point. Lot shows his own reputation, character, reasoning, and sense of safety to be corrupted by his surroundings. Living in a city which inundated him with humanistic worldview and lifestyle, rather than learning to trust God, even despite evidence of God's trustworthiness, he puts his faith in the systems of the world. Ultimately, Lot is saved, but his life is not remembered as one of victor. Uh, one of a victorious and mature hero of the faith. His name is um, absent there from that uh, list of faithful believers in Hebrews 11. He's rescued in a similar way as Noah, but uh, his unfaithfulness uh, precludes him from that list. Remember where we are here. Uh, this is actually looking from the mountains where Lot was told to flee looking down on the north part of the valley. This would be just north of where Sodom was. Here's a, a better view of it. Um, even now, after the destruction, in this uh, whole Jordan Valley or the southern portion, this is still the greenest and nicest area, though uh, it can feel rather hellish being down there at times. Uh, it gets very hot, it's very dry, and even the water doesn't satisfy because it's filled with salt. Uh, so we will look at that more next week. But for now, we look at Lot getting out of Sodom and who he takes with him. We begin with the angels who bring a herald of destruction who are warning him to get out, um, but they are offering him here deliverance. This is God's grace before judgment. Uh, this is always going to be a characteristic of God. We see it whenever he brings judgment that he always offers grace and salvation first. But there comes a point at which that grace is no longer offered and that judgment does come. So in Genesis 19.12, we see that the two men said to Lot, now these are the same two men that we have traced through Genesis 18 and 19. They are celestial beings. They are angels. Their purpose was to be messengers from God. That is the meaning of the Hebrew word malak or angels. Uh, but they've come in human form. They look like men. And it's probable that when Lot first encountered them, they appeared to him as men and he did not know that he was entertaining angels. But having seen their power and then having heard of their purpose in Sodom, Lot most likely now recognizes their angelic descent, or at least their, uh, their having come from God. Well, they say to him, who else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters. Now, it is apparent that these angels are not exercising omniscience, if they even have it. Uh, angels don't have omniscience, but they can, from God, be told of the surrounding scenarios. Now, either they are hiding this revelation that they have been given from God about who Lot has in the city, or else uh, they are simply asking him here a question to which they do not know the answer. This is not God, because God tends to ask questions that lead to an answer that he uh, presumes already. The question by the angels here, uh, leads to the uh, possibility in our minds that Lot might have sons, but they're nowhere else mentioned here. Uh, 
This is truly a search for information. That means these are angels and not God himself. They're asking if he has any sons-in-law, if he has any sons, and if he has any daughters. Now, he does have daughters in his house, and these angels are aware of that. They've been in the house with him. And later on, they're going to tell him, take these daughters in the house and come with me. But here, it appears to be a search for daughters which are outside of the house. In other words, they're saying, if you have anyone else in the city, now is the time to get them. Some people take issue here with the order of uh, people listed that sons-in-law would be first. Uh, that may be because sons-in-law are mentioned soon after as those to whom Lot went to seek, them, uh, to seek their safety as well. But it appears better that they are first asking of his most distant relatives that would be saved and then moving inward towards his own household. They're starting with the uh, perimeters and then they're moving inward. You see, on the right side here, Lot is responsible for his own household. His wife is not even mentioned until the section of verses we will get to next week. It is presumed that she will come with him because he is responsible for her. The daughters who are still in his household as well, he is responsible for them and they will come with him. He doesn't need to beg or plead with them. This is simply their position as uh, daughters in the house of their father. Now he can move out to the next closest households, but still they are separate households, and that is of his sons. These are most closely related to him, and he has some sway over them, uh, but not as much as his own household. Now moving even further outside of that, these sons-in-law, which are supposed to leave their own family and cling to their wife, they are still part of the household of Lot, but he has the least sway over them. To convince them would be a feat that could then work its way inward to his sons if he had any, but it appears that he did not, and then his own daughters and wife. And so his first appeal is going to be to this distant relation of his sons-in-law so that his married daughters or betrothed daughters might come with him. These angels do extend the offer to whomever you have in the city. Absolutely anyone which might be counted as part of Lot's household. This offer of salvation is available to them. But the condition remains that he must bring them out of the place. They cannot stay in Sodom and be saved. They have to flee. Similarly to the story of Noah, they could not stay outside of the boat and be saved. They had to uh, receive God's means of salvation. In Genesis 19.17, well, we are about to be told that the entire valley is not safe. They can't just flee the center of the city into the suburbs. They can't just flee the suburbs into the fields and valleys around it. They were told to go to the mountains, and the entire valley would be subject to God's destruction. In Genesis 6.17, when Noah was told to build an ark because of the uh, corruption of the world around him, he was told, you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Similarly, here God recognizes the sanctity of marriage, where Noah and his own wife are to get onto the boat, his children and their wives are to get onto the boat as well. Now, the difference here being that Noah had sons, and Lot has daughters. And so these daughters who have been uh, betrothed or married off to sons-in-law, he has to convince their husbands to come along with them. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the waters of the flood. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. Now, in each one of these cases, God had given them a means of salvation, a physical means of salvation for their physical lives, and they accepted it. They trusted it so that they got on the boat and their lives were saved. Now, Noah's story is overall a story of faith, one in which he is victorious. He trusts the word of God, and in every case where we see him have an option to do what the Lord said or not to do it, 
He does just as the Lord commanded. And in this, we see a flawless story of salvation, one in which the obedience of Noah allowed God to save him physically. In Lot's story, interestingly enough, we see what might have happened if Noah had not been faithful to God. God is not going to let his uh, seed line be destroyed. God has a means of rescuing the righteous, even if they are not acting faithfully, not acting righteously. But as we see, the story is not going to go so well for Lot personally, and even his descendants and his children. God was about to pull out a nation of descendants separate from the line of Noah, but from the bloodline. He's going to carve out a new nation and create something new. And so Noah's faithfulness protected him and his family, but God would have been victorious either way. And the same with Lot. His unfaithfulness put his own family in danger. Not just the unfaithfulness on the day of destruction, but the unfaithfulness with which he had lived his life and failed to train his family in the ways of God, a God which he did know, a God which he had learned from his uncle Abraham, whom he had traveled with for decades. Now we could also point to Abraham as having failed to taught his own uh, nephew who was under his tutelage for some 15 to 25 years. The importance of family teaching the next generation is paramount. And that is, remember, the very purpose why God is showing Abraham the story of Sodom's destruction, so that he can teach the next generations, so that they don't fall into the same pitfalls. Well, these angels have a purpose in Sodom. Their reason for coming is that they are about to destroy this place. God had handed them a mission, first to rescue Lot, and then to bring that destruction which Sodom deserved. Now this term for destroy comes in, uh, in uh, some isolated packages here in Genesis where we see it happening a lot in Genesis 6 and 7, and then not so much until Genesis 18 and 19. These are parallel stories, the story of the flood and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see how God operated with the whole world as the whole world became corrupt. And then after he perforated the nation so that he could deal with one at a time, we see him acting in the same way. You see, God does not change. But as man has changed, God is able to act differently towards them. He doesn't have to judge the entire world because the entire world is not one. The entire world has been separated by borders and nations and family states. And so God is able to judge Sodom, but we see the swiftness and the totality of destruction remains the same. God is not going to wink at injustice. He is not going to delay judgment forever. When he brings judgment, it is swift, it is thorough, and it is complete. In Genesis 6.11, we see a, a high concentration of this term for destruction. In fact, we see that man had destroyed themselves and so God finished their work for them. Now the earth was corrupt or destroyed in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was destroyed. For all flesh had destroyed their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence and because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now God did use the earth to destroy uh, the world beforehand. He used natural processes, but he miraculously triggered them. He had set it up that way to bring judgment at a certain point at a time of his choosing, and he brought that destruction, that day when the fountains of the deep broke loose. Well, we've already seen the tar pits in Sodom, We've seen that God has some tectonic activity going on beneath this valley, and it is prepared for this demonstration of his destruction. God is going to trigger that destruction in the next uh, pericope. Why are they going to destroy Sodom? Because of the outcry which had come out of Sodom. Now, it's hard to determine whether this was individuals crying out for justice or God's own creation calling out for justice. We might look to the uh, episode with Cain and Abel, how Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. 
that the very creation that God had made for a purpose, for the purpose of glorifying God, is groaning under the weight of sin. We see the land of Israel that's supposed to have its Sabbaths. It's supposed to have its rest, and it is supposed to be cleaned out from all of the wickedness and evil that the Canaanites are doing in the land. The very land itself begs for its Sabbaths. We see that the land, the creation, also has a say in the evil that happens on it, and God will bring justice to the land. He will wipe it clean from evil. Now, we live in a day and in an age of grace when we see this judgment long delayed, but that does not mean that this judgment is not coming. In fact, we can look back 6,000 years and see the delay of total judgment, of judgment like in the day of Noah. But surely there is still an outcry from the land. In Genesis 4, verse 10, we see that the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Interestingly, if we move to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah gives a, a long chunk of its book to declaring destruction on various nations which had sinned against God in their activity towards Israel. Moab and his brother Ammon are going to be two of those cities which are called uh, into question. Jeremiah 48.2 says, There is praise for Moab no longer. Moab is the incestuous child of Lot with his oldest daughter. In Heshbon, they have devised calamity against her. Come and let us cut her off from being a nation. You too, madmen, will be silenced. The sword will follow after you. The sound of an outcry from Haronaim. Devastation and great destruction. Moab is broken. Her little ones have sounded out a cry of distress. It is likely here that the writer of Jeremiah reminds us of Moab's foundation, that it came out of the nation of Sodom, that it preserved itself and it created itself apart from God's will, that it was made in rebellion, and that its end will be the same as Sodom's. Jeremiah 48, verse 34, From the outcry at Heshbon, even to Elela, even to Jehaz, they have raised their voice, from Zoar even to Horonaim and to Eglath-Shelishiah. For even the waters of Nimrim will become desolate. I will make an end of Moab, declares the Lord, the one who offers sacrifice on the high place and the one who burns incense to his gods. See, this is the prophecy of the end of this nation, this nation that is about to be pulled out of Sodom, this nation which... Lot's daughters are about to create of their own will, opposing God. And its end is not in glory. Its end is not in perseverance. Its end will not remain before the Lord in glory. Jeremiah continues a few chapters later, and he's switched here to a judgment on the city of Babylon. Remember from, Genesis, or from Revelation 17, Babylon is the genesis of all of this evil in the present system today. Jeremiah has gone through his list. He has he is, uh, announced judgment against Egypt, against Philistia, against Moab, Ammon, and finally he gets to the heart of the issue, Babel, or Babylon. And he, he writes, Therefore hear the plan of the Lord which he has planned against Babylon, and his purposes which he has purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of the flock. Surely he will make their pasture desolate because of them. At the shout, Babylon has been seized. The earth is shaken and an outcry is heard among the nations. The sound of an outcry from Babylon and of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. And the Lord is going to destroy Babylon. He will make her loud noise vanish from her. And their waves will roar like many waters. The tumult of their voices sounds forth. This is looking forward into the day of Armageddon, the day where God will bring the ultimate judgment that is foreseen in Sodom, the pattern brought into the whole. This is how God will judge those nations in the last days. 
He has told us from the very beginning of this civilization what end nations will have that rebel against him. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, we see some of the crying out of those who have been tormented and killed by these nations. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, when we go through all the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments of Revelation, this one stands out as particularly odd because it's not an announcement of a specific type of judgment. It's not uh, a bowl being poured down with boils, and it's not God removing the light from the earth. It's, it's not four horsemen of the apocalypse. Rather, this seal is the justification for all of that judgment. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seals, the fifth seal that's broken is the justification for the end of the world. It is the justification for God raining down total destruction on the kingdoms of Satan. And that is that God's people within this system who have been tortured, oppressed, and killed are crying out for justice. Jesus will tell them just a little while longer. Later in the book, he'll say again, just a little while longer. And finally, at the very end, he says, it is finished. A different word than he said on the cross. Atonement isn't finished, but it is finished. The kingdoms of Satan are done. God is about to wrap up world history, and he will bring his own kingdom, which is not built by man. Looking into that destruction in the New Testament, the same one we saw in Jeremiah 50 and 51 of Babylon. Revelation 18 records, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passions of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her, to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and I am not a widow." and will never see mourning. For this reason, on the day of her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Notice that prior to her destruction, God issues a call for all those who belong to him to flee from this city, to get out, to come away from it. If we see in uh, Revelation 16, some of the plagues that precede this, God strikes the whole city, in fact, the whole kingdom of Satan with darkness. They're not able to see. They're not able to move around. And these believers are able to flee from that city. Very similar to what he does in Sodom. You see, Sodom is a microcosm of the end of the world. This is God showing Abraham how he will save his people. But Abraham has a responsibility to listen to God, to believe God and to trust him, and to teach his children so that when the time comes, they will trust him. We've had thousands of years now of the Jews learning from God, the Old Testament and the New Testament, which was also written for their benefit. And all of these things will aid them when they finally turn to the Lord. In fact, I believe they will understand scriptures in a way that we have never understood them especially when you look at books like the Psalms. 
They remain rather locked away and hidden from us. But I think in the tribulation period, when the Jews again return to the Lord, when they recognize their Messiah and when they see him in their own scriptures, they will see him in ways that we have not. Lot has not learned to trust the Lord. He has not learned to teach his children the ways of the Lord. And he has betrothed his daughters to ungodly men who also do not trust the Lord. But we see that his reputation among his family members as well is not a reputation of high standing. It says, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. Now this is a participle in the Hebrew, meaning it doesn't have time of its own, to who were to marry his daughters. That means, depending on the context, it could mean those who have married his daughters, those who intend to marry his daughters, or those who will, with absolute certainty, marry his daughters. The context has to determine it here. And so the NASB has interpreted that these have not yet married his son or his daughters. And so they were to marry his daughters. But he said to these sons-in-law, or these intended sons-in-law, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. He's warning them of the coming judgment, the coming destruction, and all they can do is laugh at him. He appeared to his sons to be jesting. Now, jesting, in the, uh, the English, this is kind of an old word, court jesters come from the same root word. Jesting is joking. He was trying to get them to laugh. He was trying to raise some laughter from them, and the result is they laughed at him. This is the same Hebrew work, Zahak, which we saw before in Genesis 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, Zahak, and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Sarah, in Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed, Zahak, to herself saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Lot had a problem with his sons-in-law. They didn't believe him. When he said judgment is coming, they said, Oh, good joke, pops. What can you do? He did not have a reputation that garnered trust. He did not have a reputation of instructing them about the Lord so that they would trust him. In fact, you might even blame his choice in sons-in-law that these are the men that he would intend to marry to his daughters, men who do not have a respect for the Lord. That will be important when we get to uh, Genesis 19.30 when we see Lot's interactions with his daughters and his daughters' interpretation of their father's actions. Well, the irony here is when Lot goes out to his sons-in-law to tell them, hurry, destruction is coming, get out of town, Lot has the same reaction to the angels. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. The angels instruct him in the same way that he instructed his sons-in-law, and with the same warning, you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. The city is about to be judged. You have a very limited amount of time to get out, and you are commanded to get out. But he hesitated. This is not the best thing to do when judgment is coming. And notice at what time these angels spoke to him. When morning dawned. The morning sun is up. This is the day of judgment. In fact, judgment is coming early in the morning. In verse 27, we'll see that Abraham gets up early in the morning and looks over the hills, and he sees the destruction already having occurred. Lot will need to be forcibly removed from the city. God is not about to let him be destroyed alongside the wicked. We'll see him destroy himself later on, but God's wrath is not going to be brought on a righteous one of God. 
Now this as well is very interesting, especially when we look into the prophecies specifically about Israel. In Matthew 24, verses 2 through 3, Jesus is in his last week of ministry before the cross, and he is instructing now his disciples about the future of Israel. He said to them, to his disciples, probably here specifically, John, James, and Peter, who asked him these questions, do you, do you not see all these things, all the temple buildings that they were looking at? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? These are three different questions. God will answer each one of them. Jesus will answer each one of them. But the first one actually has two answers. The temple is going to be destroyed twice. This is the view that they would have had from the Mount of Olives looking down at the Temple Mount. It's right in their foreview. In fact, it's hard to focus on anything else. The uh, Dome of the Rock was not there at that time. Instead, they were looking down at the, uh, at the temple. And what Jesus had in mind was the coming destruction of A.D. 70. Not one stone would be left on another. This is actually the view from Mount Scopus. You can look down here. Uh, almost in the center, you can still see the temple standing there with uh, North Jerusalem burning. This is an artist's depiction of the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans. These are the stones that they threw off the Temple Mount. Not one of them left standing on the stone it was put on originally. In fact, the gold that layered the temple was melted and burned into the cracks of the stones, and this is why the Romans destroyed it to such a great degree, to get the gold that seeped down into the cracks of the stones. Otherwise, they may have left it for their own purposes and their own use. Ironically, the gold and riches from the temple was taken by Titus back to Rome, and they built the Colosseum with it. Luke 21 records Jesus' warning of this specific judgment in A.D. 70. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, this occurred in A.D. 68, and then for a time the armies had to withdraw because of supply chain issues, and then under Titus they returned and did not break their siege until Jerusalem was taken. Israel had a very slim amount of time to get out of town uh, in order to be saved. It says, then recognize that her desolation is near, the city of Jerusalem. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance. Whose vengeance? God's. They had rejected the one true Messiah of the one true God, so that all these things which are written will be fulfilled. He continues and he says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Wrath, again, from God. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now this is true even today. We are in the times of the Gentiles and the Gentiles control the Temple Mount. It is not Jews who can uh, dictate who goes up there. In fact, Jews need special permission to go there. And if they're caught praying or if they're caught with any of their own scriptures, they're kicked out, if not worse. This is the time of judgment. Now, some of the people who fled from Jerusalem around this time went not to the mountains across the Valley of Jordan, but to the mountains on the Israeli side of the uh, Jordan Valley. This here is the mountain of Masada, where Herod had built a very large mansion. Here is a, another picture of it from above. This is actually a, a uh, replica of it. About close to 1,600 or 960 Jews fled and barricaded themselves in this mountain. 
And this was not one of the mountains that they were told to flee to. They were to go to Perea, the wilderness across the Jordan Valley. And they held up in this siege fort for about a year before the uh, slaves that the Romans took from the city of Jerusalem were brought over to build a siege ramp, which you can see up there, uh, kind of on the left towards the top. There's a little hill that goes towards the mountain. The slaves of Jerusalem built this ramp up to Masada so that the Jews who were barricaded in there would not kill their own people to prevent them from building a siege ramp. And so they just sat there and let it happen. Eventually, all 960 people committed suicide because the Roman army was about to drag them off as soon as they would breach the walls. Seven people alone remained, a woman or two women, I believe, and five children. They hid themselves in a well, and the Romans took them and dragged them off to Rome. These were not the mountains that they were told to flee to. They tried to escape, they tried to get away, but they were not faithful to do what the Lord had told them. They got away for a time, just like Lot is about to get away for a time. But ultimately, his end is not going to be the one of safety that God would provide him. Now, going back to Matthew, Matthew records a different prophecy from Christ. Again, there are going to be two destructions of the temple. One occurred in AD 70. They were told to flee as soon as they saw armies surrounding the city. Here in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus tells them of a different warning. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The holy place is the temple. The temple has to be rebuilt. Daniel spoke of it looking into the future. And the warning that Israel is to look for, for that future destruction that is going to come on the third temple, is when the false Messiah enters into this holy place and declares himself to be the Messiah. When this happens, Israel is to understand. But in John 5, 43, Jesus told them that another is coming in his own name, and him you will receive. But me, you have rejected. Many Jews are going to fall prey to this false Messiah. See, Jesus came and he wasn't what they were looking for because they were looking for someone to patch up the law of the elders, the Pharisaic law, all these Pharisaic rules in the Mishnah and the Talmud, rather than to be the one true righteousness of God that the Mosaic law pointed towards. So when they saw him, who declared that they would need to have righteousness through him alone and not a righteousness of their own through law-keeping. They rejected him. They didn't want him. But another one is coming, and many of them will follow him instead because he will teach a works-based salvation, one that they're comfortable with, one that they can feel pride in rather than safety in. But he says, those who are in Judea, when this false Messiah enters into the temple and declares himself to be the Messiah, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whomever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Revelation also speaks of this event. And Revelation 12, 13 says, When the dragon, that is Satan, saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman, being Israel, who gave birth to the male child, the Messiah. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. See, God has prepared a place in these mountains across from uh, the Jordan Valley for Israel to be preserved in both cases. In fact, that place that they were warned to go to was the same place that Israel had circled for 40 years. Up at the very top of this mountain, you see a little white dot. This is the place where Aaron is buried in Mount Hor. 
better known as Mount Seir. And these are the mountains where Petra is. We're looking down into the basin of Petra, but you can't see it because it's very well hidden. This is a very vast valley that has only one entrance point, and at times it's very, very narrow, just about 12 feet across. You can't bring an army in here, but you can bring an army of foot soldiers in here. Can't bring any heavy or large equipment. And everywhere you turn, there's places to live. There's little homes and houses cut into the rock where Israel will be kept safe for three and a half years. See, Jesus has already prepared the way for them to flee to safety. He's told them what to look for and by necessity to recognize that the one who will call himself Messiah is not the Messiah. They will need to know who the Messiah is. They will need to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah of God, that Jesus has already come and they rejected him and to heed his words that he spoke that Matthew recorded that when they see this false Messiah entering into the city, they are to flee to the mountains and they are not to wait at all. They're not to grab anything. They're just to get out of town. No hesitation will be appropriate at that time. Just like on the dawn of destruction for Lot, no hesitation is appropriate. And we should recognize that with God, when he gives these commands, they should be followed immediately, especially when these commands are for our safety, for our preservation. So the result of Lot's hesitation is that these angels, these men, seized his hand, the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, something that he should have done, grabbing his family and getting out of Sodom. The angels did for him. Remember in 2 Peter 2.5, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Lot is also a pattern for us that God is able to rescue out of this world system. That it doesn't matter where we are, God has a plan of salvation, not only for justification, but for sanctification as well. God can fix the problems of this world, but we can't fix the problems of this world by depending on the solutions of this world. We have to depend on the solutions of God and of God alone. The reason why God did this wasn't because Lot was uh, otherwise a good man, but this was just a moment of slipping up. No, Lot had a whole pattern of slipping up. It seems that everything he did was corrupted by the world system he was living in. God did this out of compassion. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. They brought him out and they put him outside the city. Now they're about to give him some commands as well. When they had brought them outside, Lot, his two daughters, and his wife, they instructed them to escape for your life. This is a life and death matter. Do not look behind you. That'll be important next week. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. That'll be important this week. Escape to the mountains. It could not be more specific. Or else you will be swept away. Remember the instructions that Abraham was given. They're very similar in this pattern. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now this was not an escape from immediate destruction in the land of Ur, but of slow and steady corruption and destruction in this godless city. And so Abraham was told 
that if he would go forth from his country, his relatives, and his father's house, and enter into the land which God would show him, then he would make him a great nation, he would bless him, and his name would be great. God said, leave this place and go to this place, and this will be the result. Abraham trusted. God tells Lot, leave this place, go to the mountains, and the result will be your safety, your life. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In the day that you eat from it you will surely die. God puts him in the place he wants him for a very specific purpose and instructs him what to do once he's there cultivating it, eating freely, but not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are very specific commandments, very specific. The result of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be that they would surely die. Notice these specific commandments here. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. One, Lot is going to do, and the other, his wife, is going to do. One, he's going to ask for permission to do. He'll be permitted. His life will be spared in that he won't be judged by God, but this will not bring about the result that God would have given him had he fled to the mountains. However, his wife, not seeking the counsel of God or even trying to persuade God to her will rather than relying on God's will, she simply does in rebellion, and she loses her life. In conclusion... Lot decides to haggle with these angels. Now we might think, after his hesitation and them dragging him out of the city, he might understand the need for speed. But instead, he sits there and starts to try to bargain with them. In fact, this is kind of one of those nail-biting scenes where you just want to say, get on with it and get out. If this were a movie, this would be that scene where you can barely stand sitting down, you're you're up pacing and you're chewing on your fingernails because the actors are just acting stupidly. They should get out of danger. But instead, what does Lot do? Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. They've just rescued him from immediate destruction in Sodom. He stops along the way, tells them no. Now he speaks to them, plural, my lords, Adonai, again plural, Remember, this Adonai, Adonai can be a proper name for God. And this one is somewhat more difficult to determine whether he's speaking to God here or to these angels. Because he speaks to them, plural, but then in his next statement, now behold, your servant, singular. That means the you is singular here, not to the two men, but to the one. Your servant has found favor in your sight, singular, and your, or you, singular, have magnified your, singular, loving kindness, which you, singular, have shown me by saving my life. Now what I think is happening here is the first statement he says to the two angels, Oh no, my lords. But then he speaks to God. He speaks to the power behind these two angels, the one who sent them for this purpose. He goes right to the source to plead his case. He says, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. Favor is the Hebrew word hen, that same favor that Noah found. This is grace. Your servant has found grace in your sight. The angels don't judge by their own estimation, but rather it is in God's sight and in his estimation that man is judged. You have magnified your loving kindness, your has said, your faithfulness. God is faithful. God is gracious. Lot recognizes who it is who has saved him. But still, he's arguing with him. He recognizes this grace and faithfulness from the evidence that God demonstrated by saving his life. But then he says, I cannot escape to the mountains. For the disaster will overtake me and I will die. In other words, God, I cannot trust you. I do not trust that when you say flee to the mountains for your life, that my life will actually be spared. 
Now this, again, is an important episode for Israel to have received in the wilderness. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he edited together many, many stories from the old, uh, from prior to the Exodus. And there are probably many others that he could have included, but each of these was curated for the purpose of training Israel. And what had Israel done? Numbers 13, 25. When they, the spies, returned from spying out the land, at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at, at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They showed them the evidence of God's truthfulness and faithfulness, that the land would be flowing with milk and honey. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. In verse 29, it says, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, that is the southern desert area. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, that's Jerusalem and uh, up through Ai and Shechem. The Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan, that's Jericho. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Caleb has the opposite spirit and character as Lot. Caleb was a mature believer who learned to trust God. And when God said, you will take it, he knows that they will take it. He knows that they will be successful because God will go ahead of them. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. God had already told them they wouldn't be. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. In other words, they changed their story. They inflated it so that it became a lie. And this lie was for the purpose of getting their way, of convincing the rest of Israel to also follow along with their lack of faith. The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. This they had no evidence of. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Skipping ahead to Numbers 14, verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and those who had spied out the land tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Lot had evidence that God was pleased enough to save him by grace and faithfulness. Even when Lot was not faithful, God was faithful to him. He had evidence of God's pleasure and faithfulness to save him. Caleb continues, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now this is fear of the wrath of man, that God will be able to protect them against other people, against their wrath. The protection that Lot has been promised from God is protection from God's own wrath. And he does not trust God to be able to protect him from his own wrath. This is very troublesome. But this is the heart and the mind of an unsanctified believer. One who cannot receive the word of God and trust it. One who has to continue to learn to trust God's word. This is not a childlike faith that simply trusts God because he has no reason to distrust him. Lot even defends his dispute with these angels. And he says, now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? Lot has his own plan for how to save his own life. And his plan includes bartering with God, pleading with God. This is 
a prayer of uh, intercession. Prayer of intercession for the little town of Zoar. But this is contrary to God's will. Remember when Abraham had pleaded with God oops, over his own. Ooh, where is that? I do have it. When Abraham had pleaded with God to save Sodom or Gomorrah, or rather to save the people out of it, he did not ask for God to overlook the unrighteousness to stop judgment where judgment is deserved. Rather, he appealed to God's own character and to God's own will. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Abraham is calling for God to hold himself to the highest standards of justice. Lot is calling on God to forego justice. This is a dangerous appeal. This is the appeal, the appeal of the world. Remember, he was told oops, not to stay anywhere in the valley, to get out completely from the valley. Not only is he asking to stay in the valley, not to flee to the mountains, but he's asking to go to one of the five cities that was specifically condemned. That Sodom, Gomorrah, Zeboim, Adma, and Zoar. Zoar was supposed to be eradicated. By Lot's prayer, it was spared, but it shouldn't have been. Lot could not foresee life in the mountains depending on God. He chose instead the safety in numbers among people and in a city. Remember in Genesis 14, 13 with Cain, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. God's judgment is not trustworthy. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He fears for his safety. He fears for his life, wandering the earth as God had condemned him to do. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that anyone, who, anyone finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Land of Nod is the land of wandering. But notice what he does. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and he built a city. He called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael. Methushael became the father of Lamech. And we remember Lamech as one of the last generations before the angelic uh, corruption that entered into the earth. It was from this line of Cain that the earth became corrupted. It was from this preoccupation with building a city with accumulating the people rather than spreading over the earth, with bringing power to themselves and safety to themselves apart from God. The same thing occurs at Babel. God separates all of the rebels at Babel as well. But after this, all of these nations become possessed, preoccupied with building a city. Abraham, however, by faith, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And he was looking for a city which has foundations and whose architect and builder is God. He is looking for a city which God will deliver. And until then, he is depending entirely on the promise of God. Lot could not bear to live on the promise of God. Lot feared for his own life and sought his own means of safety, and he sought it in a city. He sought safety from the world, even by asking God to forego justice so that he could find safety among murderers 
those who had just tried to rape and kill him the night before. This is the insanity of putting our hope and trust in the world rather than in God. It will corrupt our thinking. It will lead us away from trust and it will lead us away from safety. Finally, however, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. God says, all right, if that's what you want, that's what you get. We're going to see in verse 30 that this Lot realizes was not such a good idea. And from that point, he's going to flee up to the hills, but now he's doing so apart from God's protection because God had given him permission now Okay, go to the land of Zoar. Lot's going to hightail it out of there too, again, seeking to protect himself, not relying and depending on God. God could have kept him safe in Zoar. The issue wasn't where he is. The issue is who he's depending on. We live in Asadam. We live in Zoar. We're not called to separate physically from this world. We are told to separate mentally from this world, to depend so completely on the promises of God that our minds are changed, our minds are reformed, our minds are renewed by his word because we are awaiting that rescue that is coming. We are awaiting that time where he calls us up to him, that time where he calls us away from the judgment and destruction that is coming on the ungodly, this ungodly world. But until then, we live here in our own little Zoar. We know that wrath is coming, but we know that we are protected by the promises of God. Oops. Now recall in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when these Israelites are sent back into the land of Israel, they are told when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor, no grace to them. This is God's commandment when he sends Israel back in. Not to be like Lot, asking to spare Zoar, but to bring the perfect and complete justice of God. Remember Genesis 15 had said, God is not going to bring them back in until they deserve the judgment that they will get. God has declared this is the time that they deserve that judgment. In fact, they were even spared an additional 40 years beyond when they deserved that judgment because of Israel's failure. Deuteronomy is the second giving of this command. The second generation of Israel told to go into the land. And they do it. And under Joshua, they are partially successful. But guess what? They make a covenant with a nation that was supposed to be wiped out. This again becomes a perennial thorn in their side. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. There's going to be intermarrying and interbreeding between the Israelites and the Moabites, or at this point there already had been. God judges that, wipes out, I believe it's 24,000 of them. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So God tells him, hurry, escape there. Escape to Zoar. If that's what you want, I'll protect you there. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And then we're given a little editorial note. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. Remember, previously it was named Bela when we saw it in Genesis 14. Now it has been renamed Zoar. Zoar means small. Our main point this morning, Lot shows his own reputation, his character, his reasoning, and his sense of safety to be corrupted by his surroundings. Living in a city which inundated him with humanistic worldview and lifestyle. 
rather than learning to trust God, even despite evidence of God's trustworthiness. He puts his faith in the systems of the world, and ultimately Lot is saved, but his life is not remembered as one of victorious and mature hero of the faith. Let's pray. Dear Father, we seek to be seen as mature and victorious in our faith. We seek to trust you so completely that we do not argue, that we do not rely on our own wisdom and our own ideas of safety, but that we wholly depend on you, both for our life now and for our future. We do trust the promises of God, and we know that that promise that we have is eternal life in him. So we live and depend on that hope we have of the future glory we will live together with Christ. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.